one of the things about politics that we always talk about is people say like, oh, well, this candidate, and I'm like, okay, well, here's the, how the game is played, so to speak, meaning this is how delegates are allocated. This is how you have to win. So you can be very popular in California, but if you can't win Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, or going to Super Tuesday, then it really doesn't matter how popular you are in a bunch of big states that don't vote early. So you know, sometimes what I think is, is lacking in the conversation that we're having in this country is an understanding of, frankly, you know, how the game is played, how the rules are. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interests in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate. And if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. Welcome back to Political Contessa. Today, my guest is Sean Spicer. Sean served as the 28th White House Press Secretary and is the author of the best-selling book, The Briefing. He is the host of Spicer & Co., which airs weeknights at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on Newsmax TV. Sean is the president of Rigwill LLC, a strategic consulting firm, and a partner at Point One, a political mail firm. Sean previously served as communications director and chief strategist for the RNC and worked for several members of Congress. He serves on the board of visitors of the U.S. Naval Academy and holds a master's from the U.S. Naval War College. Sean, thank you so much for being on this episode of Political Contessa. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Happy New Year. Same to you. Same to you. All right. So I love following your career and where you've gone. I remember meeting you in the way, way back machine when you were pretty early on at the RNC as communications director, working with our mutual good friend, Reince Priebus. So it was really, really cool to see you become the White House press secretary. I have to say though, it was even cooler to see you on Dancing with the Stars. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's true for a lot of folks for different reasons, but it was good. No, it was great. I mean, that isn't that what everyone everyone wants like there to be on some sort of reality TV today, right? So <laughs> it it was a hard sell. It took me um uh, over two years to kind of get sold on the show and the idea. Um, but one, I like the theme. It's very family friendly. You know, it's something my kids could watch, which is not true. It also there's no um there's no loser. Right. You you vote for people that you like. Um, you're not voting against somebody. They, they really sell you on this family friendly environment that you're going to be in, meaning that once you join the Dance with the Stars cast, you become part of their family. And it's really true. I went back for a, one of the shows, uh, I think, October of this year, and it was like a reunion. And it's amazing how many of the, 
the professionals and the crew uh, that I stay in touch with. They're just a great group of people. Um, they really enjoy the, the theme of the show, being part of the family. Um, and then the second thing, you know, is I, I wrote this in my first book, The Briefing, but my wife and I had never finished our first dance at our wedding. We're both rather um, rhythmically challenged. <laughs> and um, we literally took one group lesson. There's a place called Glen Echo. Um, there's like this park. I don't even know if it still exists. Um, but uh, they did these group lessons on whatever night. And we said, let's just go down and, and take a group lesson. And like, I think 20 minutes in it, we're like, uh, let's go get a drink. And, and it was just neither one of us have that talent. And I thought, you know, this could be kind of fun. I didn't think I'd last very long. I thought, hey, I'll learn. I mean, I'd, I'd get to do something I, I really don't know nothing about. Um, and I had a blast doing it. And I think, frankly, that's kind of what life's supposed to be about is, you know, sort of you, you work hard and, and then you find opportunities to play hard. Um, and, um, and that's what I did. I just thought, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You don't get to keep getting asked for a while. And um, and learn something new, have some fun, and and I did. I like I said, I I'd go back in a heartbeat if they had sort of a runners up season or something like that. I, I loved going back just for the show this year because it was fun to be able to to relive it a little bit and to see everybody. So anyway, yeah, I mean it's so cool. You looked like you were having a blast when you were out there, and you made it to the quarterfinals. So I mean, I you can't be that rhythmically challenged. You know, I'll tell you this though, the, I, and I joke about this whenever I give speeches now, but like if Sean Spicer can make it to the quarterfinals of a dancing show, <laughs> then you can do anything. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, if you had watched the show or if you go on YouTube, you'll know that I really didn't have uh, much skill set and the judges noted it every week. So it was all about using campaign skills and figuring out how to run it like a campaign because half of the scores come from the viewers. So, you know, um, I looked at it like, all right, I, I'm not going to win that half. So I'll have to go after this half. Did you, uh, did you send Melissa McCartney McCarthy a note and say, Hey, by the way, look, did you see what I did and what I can do? <laughs> so next time, <laughs> next time you go out and make fun of me. <laughs> no, I, I, I think, uh, I, I think they, that chapter has sailed. Uh, I, we, <laughs> we kind of crossed paths at the Emmys in 2017 and, uh, I, I think that's as close as we'll ever come again. <laughs> Probably good. All right. So let's talk about that ascension through the political structure. And just going from as, as a former party chair, right? I, I mean, looking at the RNC and being part of it, it's a lot of different personalities and you're really kind of in the daily grind and you're down in the dirt every single day. And then- you went to the White House. So how right. how did you get your start? So I grew up in New England in Rhode Island. And, um, you know, I, I, I really wasn't politically active. I didn't have a politically active family. Rhode Island's not really a hotbed of political activity on the Republican side. And so um, I got to college. I was a Japanese language major. I realized, one, I wasn't interested in it. Two, I was horrible at it. 
And um, I kind of got an intellectual awakening in a political science course. And I started volunteering. I volunteered in the Connecticut state legislature. I volunteered on some campaigns and I really felt a passion for politics. Like I, I literally was like, wow, this idea that you like go out and fight for your candidate or your position or your, your cause and you're making the case to voters, you're trying to persuade them, you're trying to turn them out. I loved it. Is My dad was a salesman growing up and I think politics at its core is just a marketing exercise. It's basically taking a, a person or an idea or campaign and getting more people to activate, donate, um, vote, you know, conduct some kind of activities. Basically like what you're doing in marketing is trying to get them to buy your product or to support your brand. And so, uh, so for me, I, I really found this this whole life, and then I became what I call mar- like a minor league ball player. Like I, I started going from campaign to campaign to campaign, and uh, eventually, the long story short is made myself made my way to the RNC, as you noted in two thousand nine. I had been through the Romney campaign in twelve, uh, a successful midterm in fourteen. And then we had instituted a bunch of reforms in the party that I wanted to sort of, I said, hey, if I stay, and most people don't stay at the RNC for more than two years, sometimes four, Reince had decided to run for a historic third term. And I said, you know, look, I'll do this because it really does. I mean, I, I don't think people fully appreciate when, when you hear people in Washington say, like, I want to spend more time with my family. At those high levels of politics and, and government, it's true. I mean, you you are at the beck and call of, of news um, and events. And, and so you can't just walk away. I mean, and so um, I had kind of decided if, Hey, if I'm going to stick around for two more years, I had a conversation with Ryan and I said, look, if I do this, I want to really be involved in reforming the debate process. I want to be involved in, in how we reallocate. Um, we involve the States in the process. I wanted more people to vote in the primary process. And uh, I mean, you think about a lot of States that, vote way late. And by the time they go to vote in the primary process, you know, the Iowa's, the New Hampshire's, um, South Carolina folks on Super Tuesday have started to decide who the nominee is. Anyway, I digress. I stayed on for another two years. And in doing that, because of my work leading the debate process, I got to know candidate Trump. And he was obviously, because of his name ID in, in the polls um, and his standing, you know, he, he sort of really cared about the debates. And I started developing a relationship with him. And then um, in August, after he became the nominee, I basically moved up to New York and um, and started working almost on a, you know, during the weekdays out of New York. It, it sort of like there weren't a lot of people, to be blunt, that were willing to do it. Um, I had a front page style section in the Washington Post called The Outsider's inside guy. And it was a story about me. And there's a lot of people that were quoted on and off the record saying, you know, I was throwing my career away. I sort of firmly believe in the party system. Um, and then once the, the voters make a decision as to who the nominee is, your job is to support them. And th- that's that's what being a, a party chairman, in your case, a, a party activist or, or staffer, in my case, um, you know, where your job isn't to pick and choose. It's like, hey, by taking that position, I always tell people it's like the league, like the, the Major League Baseball, the NFL, like you don't get to say, you know who I should think should win this week. Your job is to hope that you have great games and that the best team wins and that, you know, that, that the league benefits and you don't get to go like, you know, I mean, obviously we're both Patriots fans. So, so that's a little different, but, you know, imagine having to, to not cheer. And that's what I think the job of the RNC is to do is to sit there and say, okay, you guys go out, get the support of the grassroots. And, um, and so the long and short of it is after Trump won, there really weren't that many people. I wish I could say I went through this long, arduous process to become press secretary, but there were very few people that had the experience and the trust of the candidate at the time. And, and had been loyal. I mean, I had gone in there when a lot of people said, said no. 
And he recognized that and said, Hey, let's do this. And, you know, I, I always tell people my life changed forever on December 22nd, 2016. Um, I'd done probably 500 interviews at the RNC before that. And the closest I came to being recognized was in the sweater section of a Joseph A. Banks in Alexandria, Virginia. And even then the guy was like, Hey, aren't you that Republican guy? Um, so it was a very different, um, it, it just, it changed everything. And, um, you know, and here we are, you know, like I said, I went obviously from the White House, I left, I did a lot of things in between. Um, and then in 2019, did Dance with the Stars, launched a show um, on Super Tuesday of 2020. We're about to enter our second year um, on Newsmax. So it's been a fun ride. It's awesome. First of all, my, my dad was a salesman also. And so um, I think I was built to be a lawyer and to be in politics because just like what you said, right? Watching your, yeah, watching your parent in that sort of business and going out and marketing something all the time makes you realize that that product could be anything. And in our case, it's always a person. Um, do you think that your uh, education with your master's from the U.S. Naval Academy has helped you kind of weather some storms um, in the political process? Because the RNC, again, is the Republican National Committee is, is filled with lots of different personalities. I mean, you have people like me from Massachusetts, but then you have people from Oklahoma um, and everyone has very diverse things, th ways of thinking. So I uh, do you think that your education has helped you kind of navigate some, some treacherous waters. I think the navigation helps, you know, I got my master's you pointed out um, in national security and strategic national and strategic studies. And there's something about looking back on, on conflicts and how they were um, avoided, how they were overcome. Um, but more than anything, I think my experience, I think being in the arena is what makes a difference, especially in politics, like watching good candidates, bad candidates, good operatives, bad operatives, and, and watching them navigate that landscape um, and how they're successful. I mean, I think you learn, sometimes learn more losing than you do winning, but that's aside. But I think the point is, is that I, I've sort of been a believer in experience that looking at how people handle themselves, how they evolve. Um, and so um, that to me has been uh, the, probably the biggest thing. Have you ever thought about running for office yourself? You know, I think if you had asked me when I was um, younger, when I left Rhode Island and moved to Washington, D.C., I'd always have these visions of moving back and running for office. Um, and, and I had thought about it for a while. Even after that, I got involved in Virginia politics uh, and thought about it as well. Um, I, I don't think you could pay me enough right now to, to, to do that. I, I've been, um, I, I don't like, I, I'm not really a fan of where things are. Um, I also don't like the idea of, you know, the scrutiny and intensity. That was something in the White House that, that no one could prepare anyone for. Um, and I think that the Trump element made that much more, you know, I, I, so the idea right now of not having to, to answer to, to voters and, and that's who you do. I mean, you, you know, they have a right. That's you're, you're, you're applying for a job to represent them. And, um, and I get it, but right now there's a level of, of intensity and scrutiny and viciousness that I, I've sort of seen, I've been part of, and I don't want anything to do with. And, and frankly, I just, I think, you know, there's so much that, you have to now, if you want to run for office, I mean, voters expect to be able to kick the tires and, you know, look and say, okay, how much money do you have? And what have you spent on? And where'd you park? And where'd you go to dinner? And I just, I don't, I, my family's been through enough. Uh, I've, I've done my time. I've served 
23 years in the Navy. I've worked for 10, I think almost 13, 14 members of Congress. I served in the White House, um, in the RNC, done multiple campaigns. I sort of feel like, you know, look, I'm still involved, uh, you know, but in a different way. And, and the funny thing is, you know, I never could have predicted any of the things that came post RNC. I mean, if you look, I always tell people like my jobs, I always, you know, they give those disclaimers when you watch a, um, a stock commercial or a financial and they say past performance is no indication of future returns. And so I tell people when they're asking me for job advice, I said, look at the job, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future returns. But if you look at the job, where have the people gone on from there? How have they done? If a job, job A has always had people who have excelled and succeeded from there, you know, and, and gone on, then that, then, you know, that's no guarantee for you, but it's a good indication. And then I, when I was leaving the RNC, I thought, okay, like the general trajectory is people go on, they become consultants, they work in, you know, they, and then I was like very content with going off and doing that, getting a corporate job or doing something um, and, and kind of focusing on my family at the time. I just had no idea that was in store for me, but that all being said, I, I absolutely love what I do now at Newsmax. I wake up every day. I get to have conversations with folks. You've been on the show multiple times. And, and I get to literally say on, on any given morning, like what's driving the news, the conversation. And like, I, I talk to people that like, I feel like our show is it's at six o'clock every night. And I feel like if you were sitting at dinner, what's the conversation that you're having tonight? And so who could we invite on the show that would sort of, we would be asking that question of, what would you be talking about tonight? And like, what, what question would you want to ask if you could have, you know, at dinner tonight, the, the, the most prominent guest on that issue. And so what we try to do is to construct a show that's literally like the six o'clock dinner conversation. And, and so for me, that's, that's literally like, I think if my guidance counselor in elementary school would say, you know, we didn't do that back then, but if they, at least <laughs> if I could fast forward, they'd say, Hey, you should you know, host a show and talk about political and pop culture stuff. And I think the takeaway is, you know, because we're the same age, and I think the takeaway is never too late to find where you're supposed to land. I mean, and I, you do a, such a good job. You and Lindsay do such a good job on the show um, and having guests on and having those conversations. And I think that's such an important thing that I try to do on Political Contessa and out there when I'm, you know, on the news circuit. It's just trying to get people to have a conversation in a way that everyone understands, that you do understand at the kitchen table, right? That you can talk to your kids about, that it's not coming off in a mean and aggressive way, but it's coming off with actual evidence and knowledge and, um, and facts, right? Which, which is something that I think is really lost today, but you do a great job. And I think part of the reason you do an awesome job is because you were in, you know, you were, at the firing squads, um, number one victim on a constant basis. So, well, it, I mean, I, I think that one of the things that's lacking, and I have this conversation all the time like, look, when I go into a doctor's office, I trust what they're saying. They're the expert, right? Or a lawyer, whomever. Like, I know what I don't know. But it's amazing how many times I turn on the television and I hear a host or a guest talking about something in politics or government. And, and I'm like, nope, that's not how it works. And again, they're entitled to their opinion. That's fine. So what I love about the show is that I can come on and interject. I don't pretend to be a journalist, and but I can have a conversation and say, okay, well, unfortunately, this is how this is going to play out, you know, based on the Senate rules or precedent or whatever it is. And 
Or one of the things about politics that we always talk about is people say like, oh, well, this candidate, and I'm like, okay, well, here's how the game is played, so to speak, meaning this is how delegates are allocated. This is how you have to win. So you can be very popular in California, but if you can't win Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, or going to Super Tuesday, then it really doesn't matter how popular you are in a bunch of big states that don't vote early. So you know, sometimes what I think is, is lacking in the conversation that we're having in this country is an understanding of, frankly, you know, how the game is played, how the rules are. Yeah, I find that a lot when I'm listening and I'm looking and I'm shaking my head and I'm saying that's actually that's that's not. <laughs> well, and, you know, you know, one of the things that I, I got a lot, I still get and I'm sure you do, too, is, you know, the party should do this and the RNC should do that. And I always say to people like you guys realize that the RNC, for the most part, is 200 people in a building in Capitol Hill. The RNC is is a is a institution that represents the thousands of grass, millions of grassroots um, activists and voters. And same thing with the party chair. I mean, how many people are employed at the Massachusetts GOP? Five, 10? Yeah, I, yeah, currently maybe three, but when I was chair, right. it was 10. Right. Okay, That's so it. 10 people. And so right. every time they say the party should do this, you're like, okay, which part? I mean, we have 10 people. Someone's doing like IT and admin. Somebody's raising money. Somebody like there's not this massive apparatus. And people forget sometimes that that they assume that there's like a million people working for the, the party. And so sometimes on the show to be able to explain to people, the party is you. The party is the activist. The the, the institution is, a, is five or 10 people in Massachusetts or in Richmond, Virginia, where I live, or Providence, Rhode Island, or whatever, but it's not what you're ascribing. And that's where I think sometimes we lose context is, and, and what I love about the show is to be able to come in and say, okay, actually, you know, in a congressional office, this is how that would work. In a campaign, that's how it works, or this is how the RNC really deals with this stuff. And that's what people need to hear. I, I have to tell you, like, going back to this party thing, I have been using that. The mass GOP is an apparatus. It, it is... 80 elected members from a state of over 7 million people. And it is an apparatus. It is not the voters. It is not the people who want democracy. It is not the people who expect a thriving two-party system. And so, right. you know, that's, that's the thing that you see being someone who is on the ground at the RNC, but also working in Congress and then the White House. Um, and, and I think it's a really interesting fact for people to see and know. And that's why it's great to have you on TV, because you you aren't a journalist. You weren't watching from the outside. You were actually right. on the inside. So is it as exhausting as everyone says being in the White House? I mean, you can see in the Biden-Harris administration, which is a joke, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, but you saw Harris had a whole bunch of people just recently leave. And, you know, the reason was the exhaustion. I find it interesting that they're exhausted leaving the vice president's office and not leaving You're the right. president's office, because usually I think it's the other way around. Um, but is it as exhausting as everyone says, you know, outside of the you being in the firing squad? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Trump factor was huge, meaning that it was a lot more intense under Donald Trump, but it is an exhausting job because there's no timing for natural disasters, uh, you know, political strife, 
uh, foreign military intervention, all that stuff, weather related things that, that, you know, we just had a massive snowstorm in DC. I mean, you know, when, when everyone else in the government is staying home, you know, they're not like, okay, you just, you, you go, okay, I got to get in because we got to be briefing this and I got to make sure the president knows that. Da, 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 da. Um, not to mention the level in, in my case in particular, there was so much, um, you know, palace intrigue where it was just like, you know, what color jacket is Sean wearing today? Is the president happy with that? And how many people are, you know, uh, upset today? So um, it, it is intense. It's just, but it's also just, like I said, hard work. Like Mike McCurry, one of the predecessors that uh, as press secretary, uh, you know, said to me, hey, his rule was he tried to take one day off that he worked at home. And it wasn't a day off because you're connected, nothing happens, but it was just one day. And, and I'd made that Sunday um, in my family, my kids were younger than they, you know, obviously they are now, um, but they were four. And I mean, they were, I think they were four or five. And, um, and so I just wanted to have one day where they actually saw me. And so again, I might be on the computer working at home, but they, they, they could actually physically see their dad because I would leave the house at five in the morning and I'd get home anywhere between eight or nine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it just, the job doesn't lend itself. Um, and for a lot of folks, remember, especially in the first year of a White House, they had been on the campaign. So you go nonstop and all out and then you go, okay, transition. And then we got to kick off the White House. And, and those first few days are massively intense. So um, I think there's, there is a difference. There are some folks, you're right. I think it's interesting that you're seeing the, the departures from the vice president's office as opposed to the, the West Wing. Although I think you will start to see those um, probably later next month when the one year anniversary is passed. And they can say, okay, I did a year. Um, but it's just, you know, I think the Biden administration, frankly, is probably a lot easier because he's, he's, he's you know, up late, meaning up late, like 9, 10 a.m. And, 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 <laughs> right. you know, and then early to, early to bed at like 4, four o'clock. In the it's, a, it's a late start and <laughs> an early end to the day. Right. But- I can't even imagine working in this White House. All right. So let's get started on this crap show of 2021, um, you know, beginning in 2021 and then moving on uh, to the new year, which I I can't wait to see what ball of bag of tricks they have for us now. Um, But you recently released a new book called Radical Nation, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's Dangerous Plan for America. I love it. After Thank law you. school, I hated, hated, hated reading. I read like 300 pages a night. And this book I could not put down. And I actually gave to a ton of people for Christmas. So wow. thank you for, for giving me something that was speaking to me. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've really uh, enjoyed, gotten to enjoy reading. And I, I like you, I went to, to grad school and, uh, and we, were, we would cram a ton. Uh, but I've learned to to find books that I like. And, and I wanted to write books that I would want to read. And so this is my third. But one of the things that I really wanted people to get out of Radical Nation is so like sort of bite-sized ways to break down arguments and understand, okay, here's what's happening. Here are the facts to back it up. Here's the way to deconstruct the argument. But I think because too often we have these esoteric arguments that are like, you know, and then if you look at pi squared and take out the geometric, fa- I mean, but you know, I, I, I love the example that I lay out in the book because I, you know, about voting rights in Washington, D.C. And I make the case that in in um, in the 1700s, in the late 1700 and 1790, um, we created the District of Columbia and the framers wanted to make sure that uh, 
that it wasn't part of any state because they wanted it to be free from interference. And so they took part of Maryland, part of Virginia and made a 10 by 10 mile square district, right? And then in 1853, they gave back the chunk that was Virginia. I literally right now would have been in the District of Columbia where I live in Alexandria, Virginia, had it not been for this, but Virginia got its part back because it wasn't being used. And so the Democrats want to create what remains of DC, it created a state. My argument is, well, wait a second, why don't we give back that which came from Maryland, which there's clearly precedent for. We don't create another state. It gives Maryland more federal. They should love it because now they're getting more voters, more federal dollars. Um, It gives the people the voting rights. And then you carve out an area from the Washington, from the White House to the Capitol down the Washington Mall. And so you keep the framers intent. You know, it's win, win, win. And yet you stop and you think to yourself, well, when Democrats talk about voting rights, that to me is the easy answer. Maryland exists as a state. You, you've already taken back property from the, or you're giving back property that was there. Uh, there's precedent, as I mentioned, 1853. So win, 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 right? Well, wait a second. When you stop and you say, but the current District of Columbia, as constructed with their 300,000 or 400,000, whatever it is, people, they vote 90 to 10, 95 to five for Democrats. So you'd get two additional US senators. Ah, there's your answer. It's not about voting rights. And so I think by laying out arguments like that and saying, okay, here's what the left is telling you. Here's the reality of the argument. And here's how you can deconstruct it and and sort of win the argument, if you will. And it's not even winning. Because to me, if you look at a Democrat and say, okay, I'm for voting rights too. Why don't we just give them back to Maryland where they were taken from? Maryland would be really happy because they're getting additional voters, i.e. federal dollars. Um, they'd get another congressional seat, maybe. And, uh, and so everybody's happy. And you give the people a right to vote. And you don't have to go through the nuance. Well, the problem is that, that then the Democrats stop. And the answer is, well, because they're not getting the two additional Democratic seats in the U.S. Senate. That's the problem. So, you know, and then I end the book, chapter uh 20 in the book is, is, a, is a look at what we as conservatives can do. And it talks about, and I, I think basically the idea was to take all these things that people have told me, I started this, I attended this, I read this. It's like, all right, here's the conservative action plan that you can use. Which I love. Okay. Which I love that you give out a conservative action plan. I think that that's a fabulous part. I want to go back to um, to DC. So when I, one of the things I find when I'm talking to people who are interested in running or just wanting to have a conversation and feel like their voices are, especially living in Massachusetts, and and you know this from growing up in New England and, you know, obviously where you live isn't, I mean, now you have Yunkin, so congratulations, and um, we all... But I live in Northern Virginia, so that's that's what I do. <laughs> right, so you're, you're, you're still, you know, closer to that D.C. mindset. Um, when I'm talking to people, especially women, I try to tell them, find facts. Don't go based on what you heard on the news and just start arguing things because you heard it like we were talking about. Argue things that actually make sense because it's really hard to refute. So I love that part in the book where you were basically saying, give it back to Maryland. And then you have everyone's in their own state. And instead of creating, and and I think you pointed it out in the book too, that the framers had that 10 by, you know, 10 mile area. They gave a maximum 
of how big DC could be, but they didn't give a minimum. Right. So if they wanted to, they're looking at maybe five square miles, right? And and I also would like to caution that anytime Ayanna Presley is in favor of something, as someone who lives in the same state, it would be like Elizabeth Warren being in favor of something. It is right. totally self-motivated. It is in her own self-interest. It has nothing. And why is a, a rep from Massachusetts commenting on what goes on, you know, at the federal power seat in DC as far as the voting? Well, but again, it's sort of like, also, why do you, I mean, I, so she has a right to weigh in fine, but at the end of the day, then if you say, okay, so if your goal is voting rights and here's a way to do it, like, but they, they only care about one way. And that way is, is the only way they care about is if that way results in them getting additional political power. And part of what I try to make the case in the book is that, look, so much of what the Democrats ultimate goal is on policy when you strip away the argument is about obtaining and maintaining political power. And that's important to understand because I believe so many of the policies that they're articulating aren't about doing things better because you can say, okay, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if you ever watched, there's this, um, there's this scene in Austin Powers that I always go back to that I think is the funniest thing ever. And um, they, Dr. Evil has Austin Powers trapped and, and, they're saying, okay, well, Scott Evil says, okay, we have like a gun. We could kill him right now. He says, no, no, no. We're going to put him in the shark tank and close the door. And, you know, and Scott Evil's looking at him like, well, we could literally do it right here. And and I think so often that's what, you know, th- there's an obvious answer. And you go, okay, well, if that's all you're trying to do, then let's do it this way. This is the easy way. It makes most sense. And yet Democrats will always tell you, no, 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 no. We've, we've got this other way. Let's go into the shark tank and close the door. And it's, well, why do you want to do that? And I think in so many cases, when you peel back the onion, it's always in pursuit of obtaining and maintaining political power. That's it. Right. And I mean, and you point out in the book too, which I thought was super interesting and I cannot stand this woman. So I don't think I've ever taken the time to look at her website, but AOC's website where, um, you know, in her, in her um, uh, green new deal is actually the whole social social structure, right? The Marxist right. social structure that she has in there, and that her chief of staff went on to go say, "Oh, you think this is about climate? This isn't. This is overall economic policy." That right. is horrifying, and actually, right. But that's what I'm saying. So many times, it's right there in front of us, and yet the the media won't cover it. Um, fairly. And there's two chapters in the book about how, how horrible the media has become and complicit in carrying the water for these guys. Um, but, but so you have to dig below and understand it. And I, you know, you, you mentioned this a minute ago, and I think it can't be overstated is that when you go back with facts and just say, you know, nope, this is, here is the stated goal of this. Like, here's her website. Here's what she actually said, or here's what, you know, um, you know, the, the, the government statistics show on X, then, then we win because I've said for a long time that that I am a, a big believer in in policy over personality. If you can demonize somebody, you know you you may you may get people not to like that person. So you know you you bring up Ileana Presley or AOC or who cares? I can demonize them with the best of them. And at the end of the day, the person that is watching us or me or you might say, "Okay, you're right. I don't like her anymore." Okay, if we can have an argument over policy where I can say, here's what she's arguing, and that's why this is stupid, and here's why this will hurt your family, your community, your business, your state, 
uh, here's what I'm offering. Here's why I think it's better. And they win over, then they've lost somebody and we've picked someone up. That's a, I mean, think about it. Fundamentally that, that changes the dynamic, getting somebody pissed off at somebody else and having them not like them is a, is a negative one. But if you can actually convert them through policy, it's a plus one. You actually pick up a voter and that is a much more, you know, lucrative proposal long-term. Yeah. So first of all, you and I think exactly alike because clearly of where where we worked and you know being in the party structure, right? But I actually did a podcast on that on policy versus personality because yeah. so many times I hear I, I facilitate a um, a political table once a month and I have Democrats and Republicans and I just moderate the discussion. I throw things out and we just start talking. And I have folks that will say about Biden, he's crazy, he's losing his mind, you know, he's got Alzheimer's. And I have to bring the conversation back and say, who knows factually, right? No one has said that. But what we right. should discuss are the policies. Just like when people said about Trump, he's nasty, he's orange, he's, you know, you could you could talk about his personality and the fact you don't like tweeting his tweets, but then there was the, you know, tenor versus the temperament, right? The way the policies that he had were right. good for all of us. And so let's talk about the policies and what you find. I, I saw a tweet from someone today who I know and I respect and on the other side, and it was talking about elitists. However, this person's um, a partner is from a wealthy family. <laughs> so like, you know, they, it's, e it seems easy for the left to throw out jabs that, that get hits. However, factually, they don't want to talk about their own background. No, but they, they don't, or their policies. And I, I it's funny, I, I don't want to go off on a rant here, but I've gotten really tired of this phrase, whataboutism, because it's the way that the left sort of says to the right, like, we're not going to let you call out our hypocrisy. And, and I, I, there's so much stuff that the left does. And then I'll go, okay, well, but you guys didn't do this. You didn't say this. You didn't comment on this. And they go, oh, that's just whataboutism. No, it's true. You, you know, we talked about this on the show yesterday. When Barack Obama was elected for the second time, his second term, 14% of the country says that he wasn't legitimately elected. 14%. When Trump was elected in 2016, 49% of the country all you know, folks on the left said he wasn't legitimately elected. Okay, 14 to 49. When Joe Biden was elected, 29% said that he wasn't legitimately elected. So let's be clear. The people who don't believe in legitimacy are folks on the left. They showed that in 2016. It's the same poll from the Washington Post. Gallup has a very similar track. It actually went down. And yet if you listen to the media, you would think that everyone on the right believes this and and they're the ones who started it this started with folks on the left and and frankly was a bigger deal then and it's less now but yet the narrative in the media is well this is all pushed by folks on the right and it started with them and it'll end with them and they're the ones who continue to gaslight that's just simply not true yeah and that's such an awesome point those are the statistics that we need to talk about right, right? because it's an actual those those are policy issues those are those are actual statistics then there are policy priorities and there is the motivation you have kids i have kids we see it in school 
I had a had to call the my kids go to private school. They're very fortunate. They're able to go to private school. And you actually point this out in your book that for parents to take hold of their children's education and send them to either private or parochial schools, you know, homeschooling is a whole other ball of wax, as you point out. Um, but in their school, fortunately, they were in school the whole time that they were out for those three months in early pandemic and then back in school. But I've had to call the headmaster and say things like, I mean, I agree with a lot of the issues, but I don't think that we should have a picture of a representative from one side of the aisle and not from the other. Either have none or have both. I don't think you can have an LGBTQ flag and not have a blue lives, black lives, <laughs> and and any other flag up. And so, you know, either we're teaching kids in school. Well, that's the, right. And, right, and that's where I think, and and that's part of the reason that you know, at the as I said, that last chapter in the book, we talk about, um, you know, all this, all these things that parents can do because you're absolutely right. You've got to get involved. You've got to be willing to fight that because I, I think frankly, the left wins when the right is silent. That's what they want. They want complicity. They want complacency. And so where, if you, if you care about these things, it's not easy. It's not comfortable. I don't, I don't always grant you that or, or you know, but, but at the end of the day, it's, it's worth fighting for. And I think, you know, if we don't stop it, it just becomes part of the bloodstream. And, and again, I'm with you. I'm like, why do certain flags get flown, but others don't like, I don't understand how and nothing against it. I don't really care. I mean, how you live your life. I'm a pretty libertarian guy. Right. But at the end of the day, I'm like, why are we promoting one lifestyle over another or one race? I thought the whole idea was we all, you know, kind of were equal. We wanted equality. And yet we we've now figured out, like, if you believe in a left leaning thing, we're going to promote your cause. Right. I mean, I feel like that's in the Pledge of Allegiance, right? (laughs) We're all one nation under God. Um, And I feel like there's a lot of division now, and that is being caused by the left. I mean, we see it in all the wokeism, in, um, you know, in the critical race theory. I have friends that began Parents Unite in Massachusetts because in private school, the teachings where parents are paying for school and should be more active in that role, and they're not. Um, same thing in public schools that you saw in Virginia. Um, you know, but you you see it in all walks of life. Right now, with kids under the age of twelve being vaccinated, I have a nine year old. Um, you you know, you have young kids. I have a friend who's being bullied by other moms in the class because she has not yet vaccinated her five-year-old. And I mean, yeah. so, I mean, you know, it's, it's at the point the, where it's ridiculous. We've gone from a, yeah. I, I mean, just the, um, we, we've gone from a, a system of do, you know, you make the best decisions for your family within consultation with whomever you're, your medical professional, whatever to, we're going to tell you what to do. So. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's a, and I think you, you handle that great in your book in one part of your book, Um, which I really, really appreciated. And I feel like this is a mantra for everyone to, uh, to live by. But at the end, you say that you can defend your beliefs boldly, but respectfully. Right. And I love that phrase. And I think it would be nice to see folks on both sides of the aisle to implement that belief. You know, I'm Catholic and the teachings, and I went to Catholic school when I was a kid and the teachings had always been do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's how I raised my girls. I don't like mean girls. I don't like people who are just being nasty for the sake of being nasty and making things up. And I I don't think we have anything to gain as a society of disrespectful assholes, quite frankly. 
Well said. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so, Sean, I just wanted to say thank you so much. I think your book is awesome. Um, what do you What do you hope that this accomplishes? Well, again, I, my goal is just to get people to understand what's at stake and how they can articulate. I think uh, you know what, what needs to be done, how to do it. Gives them a roadmap, gives them the facts, and so if you if you are interested, you can go to Amazon, you can go to SeanSpicer.com, Newsmax.com forward slash twenty three will get you there. But there's signed copies at SeanSpicer.com as well. So I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Well, when when I see you, you're going to have to sign mine. Oh, um, <laughs> So again, I would like to thank my friend Sean Spicer for being on with, on with me today on this episode of Political Contessa. It is always fun to have someone else to talk politics with, especially someone who lives and breathes the stuff every single day and is a professional with a fabulous reputation in this crazy business that we're in. So Sean, I wish you the best with the book thank and you, the best with your show. And I hope everyone goes and buys this book and reads up on how terrible progressive policies are going to destroy our country and leave generations in debt and worse off than us, our parents and our grandparents. That is not the American dream. Sean, happy new year to you, Rebecca and the kids. Stay happy, healthy and safe. Happy new year. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com. 